Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Jacob Cooper is a clinical social worker, a certified Reiki master, and certified hypnotherapist who specializes in past life regression therapy, working privately with clients through online services. Inspired by his near-death experience at the age of three and transformative encounters, he facilitates spiritual awareness and empowerment through life-changing seminars. Currently, he resides and practices in Long Island, New York. He's the author of Life After Breath, published by Waterside Productions. Take a listen to my conversation with Jacob, where he shares about his near-death experience and all of his spiritual insights. Hey, Jacob, how are you? Hello, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on as an honored guest. I'm so happy that you're here, Jacob. You have an incredible story, and I can't wait for people to hear about it. I'll just give a short uh, version of your background. You're a licensed social worker in New York, right? That's correct. Yes, a, a clinical social worker. Had to mm -hmm. work very hard for that. <laughs> yes, yeah. I know. From what I've read in your book, I know you worked very hard. Yeah. And you also had a near-death experience as a child. Now, you spent your time growing up with a heightened spiritual awareness, which, um, from what I understand from your book, uh, which is called Life After Breath, mm -hmm. caused some inner turmoil, particularly with your upbringing. So let's start with what led to your near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, what led to it was that it was caused by pertussis, otherwise known as uh, whipping cough. And at the time I was three years old. Uh, and so I, I had pertussis. It wasn't, you know, treated. I didn't get the vaccine, you know, for it. It's a highly contagious upper respiratory virus. So, uh, you know, so immense amount of parallels with the release date of my book, you know, a couple of months ago in December with what's happening right now, you know, in these highly contagious upper, upper respiratory viruses. But I, yeah, it was due to pertussis and I, I suffocated, you know, and once I, lost everything that I was holding on to in my body, you know, I opened myself up to this uh, unlimited body and this un unlimited field of understanding and energy that I reawakened to. That's, that's incredible. Your memory of this, you were three years old, but you have a very clear recollection of what occurred. Yeah. That's that's pretty incredible. How how is that even possible? I mean, is there some research about that? Yeah, I know PMH Atwater. Um, she's uh, really a good uh, person to go to for infant and childhood near death experiences. I think she's had a near death experience herself, and um, you know, I think as a therapist, certainly it relates to trauma, right? And if you have something. So traumatic as suffocation, and you tend to, you know, be able to remember that. Uh, and so, if you watch, let's say, Surviving Death, you know, the documentary on Netflix, if it's possible for kids to remember lifetimes that happened you know, hundreds of years ago or fifty to hundred years ago, and they're able to have that cellular memory and they're able to say it in a matter-of-fact way, uh, I certainly think it's very possible to have clear memories that happen within this body in this lifetime. Uh, but I think also the euphoric elements of it, you know, that hopefully we could get into a little bit where I had this experiences that were not produced by the brain. When, you know, when, it, when my brain cracked open, that's when 
the other side and other elements of the other side, you know, kind of uh, trickled in. So, you know, I think really this experience was very much out of this body, out of this world in a sense. And so I think that's how I was able to really have a clear cut memory of it. Uh, consciousness was not produced by my own body during this. It was, you know, you know, my body stopped and consciousness continued. So trauma definitely will keep memories alive, but also from the research of adult near death experiences, the memories are clear and precise versus a hallucination, which is a lot of the time the explanation that skeptics give. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's a combination of the two um, is what I'm hearing. So take me through then, take me through some of the aspects of the near-death experience once you crossed over a little in a little more detail. I know you had a lot of connection with spiritual beings. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Ironically, um, when you read Life After Breath, there's a lot of um, allegorical and symbology, you know, references with my name of Jacob. I went to a park and I had my near-death experience going up on a ladder onto a slide, much like, you know, Jacob from Genesis when he had the dream of the angels going up and down the ladder. Um, and, you know, you kind of think of the reference of a child in God's playground. You know, literally I was found myself, you know, again, just kind of awakened to God when I was in a playground. And I just remembered how we're all just playing through life and we're all connected to God. But I was going up the rungs of the ladder when I started to suffocate. And that's when you know, every part of my body shut down, you know, much like a power breaker. And like I write in my book, Life, Life After Breath, the last part that I was aware of was my own brain. And due to the deprivation of oxygen, my brain, literally, I heard a crack in half. I could just snap in half as if you take a plug in a wall and, and, and yank it out. And once that opened, as, as the saying goes, my brain literally cracked in half and God came in. Uh, you know, we have all these euphemisms, I think, for a reason. Uh, I think my near-death experience, I think part of it is people just have a hard time believing it because it, you know, it, it just seems too, uh, believe, too good to be true in a sense. It's like all these things that we have. I literally had all these things happen to me from Jacob to the playground to, you know, brain cracking in half and God coming in. But, you know, once that happened, I was, um, bear in mind, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish traditional home. There's no teachings of these kind of higher mystical beings, although I think with any, any religion at its core, it's spirituality, but I think the group orientation takes control over that where they kind of take out the mystical stuff and it's more of you know, the rule-bound orientation. Uh, but I, you know, when I crossed over, I had connections to, uh, it wasn't Jesus like in front of me himself, but it was a, a consciousness that I connected to, as well as the closest thing that I re could recall was to the domain of God or the eternal light that I connected to. Um, I saw my body flatlined and uh, countless angels that were literally right above my body, just floating up and down right in front of me. Um, I felt that I had a form as well past the body where my body was on the ground. People were calling me and I felt my soul form, I, you know, I had a form that was out of my body and I tried to communicate with them but I was aware of, of forms that we continue to carry when, when, when we're out of the body. But then I was able to really connect to my own spiritual guides, deceased loved ones, uh, orientations that weren't uh, within time. I was able to understand events of previous carnations, events 
you know, of future orientations. But when the on the when the on the when you are on the other side, there is no time. It's just timeless, and you recognize that there is no real life. It's just one moment, one lifetime. It's so much different than what the linear mind could comprehend. Uh, but I think the most profound uh, understanding was the power of choice and how I had a decision to, you know, stay in this body in this lifetime as, as myself or to cross over and join my loved ones on the other side and my angels and soul family. Um, but I was shown future premonitions of the work that I would be doing as a teacher within this and the healer that I would become. And I, I thought that the ultimate heaven was bringing the here after into the here now. And this was a unique window that I had from having this experience and being able to integrate into others' lives. And once I decided to say yes to, you know, my life path, to say yes to the mission uh, was when everything kind of dissipated and I woke up with my mother right by me in the hospital bed, you know, uh, so it, uh, there, there's a lot there. Um, and, I, and I think within Life After Breath, obviously, I get a, li- a little bit more elaborated within it. So, yeah. yes. How was life after that circumstance? How, I mean, do you recall how things uh, were with recovery? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How was that? Yeah. You know, I think I, I recall very little of my childhood or infancy. Mm-hmm. But the things that I do remember are not of this world, you know. And so okay. the day-to-day mundane stuff it didn't have that much legs to stand on. Uh, but I, I think, you know, after that experience, obviously after my brain shut down, uh, it, it, you know, it really was a lot more connected. I, I view the brain as a filter of consciousness between the two worlds. And so after that experience, um, you know, I really was an open conduit between the other side and this world. And so... I remember just kind of sitting in my classes and I just had a light that I was able to connect to within my brain and just a part that just connected within my brain. And I was able to access that light, you know, on a regular basis. And so I would cross over to the other side and constantly visit, you know, friends and family. And it wouldn't happen usually when I was like doing my classwork, but I would, you know, value my quiet time. And when I would go to, let's say the bathroom and kind of like the deeper brain waves of my brain would kind of uh, calm down a little bit more was when I really was able to just open up, you know, and I think the brain works like a parachute when it's more open, you're able to access a lot more information. Uh, so uh, I had that. And also I, I had also rude awakening, which I speak about in life after breath, where um, a part of me had a knowing, which is why I didn't speak about it, that what I had, people would just would not understand. So I was very, I separated church and state. I didn't kind of go out there externally and discuss what I experienced because the words are just too profound. And so I think within all of our developmental progress, there's an outside external portrayal of ourselves, which is a very limited um, degree uh, of portrayal of who we truly are past the surface. And so there's, there's this inner processing that I think we all carry from infancy to childhood. And what I like to call the sacred eternal observer, you know, or, or the soul, so to speak, that is always there past the surface stuff that we portray to the world. So there's an inner processing of life. Uh, but, you know, one experience that really kind of rocked my world that made, you know, this world a lot more difficult was when I was having these kind of interdimensional communication with, you know, uh, kind of these animals and spirits on the other side. And I turned to a classmate and I just kind of asked, 
if he also saw that and it just kind of got the people's eyebrow look, you know, from the rock and just a look of disbelief. And, you know, that was very kind of deflating. And, and so. Because other kids obviously weren't seeing the, the visions that, that you they were weren't seeing. connected to. And mm-hmm. so I think that was a traumatic experience for myself where I felt very isolated and very different and very alone. And so I had that knowing that my parents at the time wouldn't be able to understand, even if I tried to, the, the language wasn't quite there. But then to have your peers, you know, not on the same page with you um, was, was very difficult. Then I think the, the harder part was, and I'm probably not saying the term right, was, was the age dysphoria that I was having, where in a sense, I was taken out of this body and I had all these recollections of previous carnations. And so I couldn't, I had to almost be forced to kind of play the game within this body and remember it. But just in a way, I, it was hard for me to play the game and I couldn't express that. And so when people would, I guess, talk to me like a blank canvas and a blank slate, uh, as if I was nothing, there was an inner rebellion that I had towards, you know, adult figures and authority figures, you know, who looked at the surface, but weren't looking really at me, you know, who were seeing the body, but not kind of seeing my soul. And uh, so uh, anyone who had kind of like an authority type role, I was pretty rebellious at, but, but it was usually kind of relational specific. I was able to do a decent job at it, but it was mostly with my parents that I was very oppositional with um, for many reasons. But I think just the frustration of not being able to express what exactly what was bothering me, but just on, on a deeper level, the, the understanding that I was not what, what they were seeing me as, you know, and it was just very hard for me to just bog that inner voice down and to, to survive and play the game. It was very hard for you with, with your family, because obviously like most families, they're going to have a certain vision for you. Um, They want you to succeed. They want you to, just to have a good life and to have anything that goes against either your religion or just family values. It's hard to be accepted. Right. And I think also the possessiveness and and the uh, pedestal that was removed, you know, obviously having my near death experience to speak about this in life after breath, how, you know, once I connected to all these heavenly beings, I recognized that I, I came from my mom and dad and they were lovely people, but, you know, I didn't belong to them. I wasn't created from them. My body was. And so, you know, they were just kind of playing their roles. And so they have, you know, parents have a possessiveness of their kids as if this is mine and came through you, but I don't belong to you. You know, it's it's a temporary kind of dynamic uh, and, and it's a role play, you know, but it's not something that internally, you know, that I belong to. And obviously when people cross over to the other side, they take off their masks and they all kind of see each other through kind of like an equal portrayal in a way. And that's very hard for the mind to understand when we are so ingrained in our different roles to see our son, you know, all of a sudden kind of being an equal playing field. But I think within soul groups, you know, there's no superior kind of situation where one's up and other's down and a dependency. It's all kind of, kind of one soul in a way uh, that's very much, you know, connected to each another without higher vantage points over one another. Life's hard enough just to try and fit in, in general, with the average obstacles. But to have that heightened awareness, that spiritual awareness, I mean, that's such a challenge. So what what was the thing that helped you get through? How did you manage through your childhood and adolescence into adulthood with this open 
spiritual awareness? Yeah, you know, I was a very private kid. And the book, I speak about this higher consciousness that I would talk to called Minder. I didn't even know what the mind was, but this was the name that I made up to this kind of higher consciousness. So as a child, I remember just being in kindergarten, I would look forward to this communication with this higher consciousness or higher awareness that I would have. In a, and, you know, one of the lessons that I learned from Minder was the issue of just being too much in my brain and the value of being more so in my gut. And years later, through different practices, I learned the value of being in your gut and not being in your brain and how dangerous it was where obviously Harvard science is talking about the gut as a second brain now, you know, and so all these things that people learn within advanced, you know, curriculums, I was given as a channel, as a young you know, child and infant, you know, from this dialogue with consciousness. So I really would value, you know, privacy, but I speak about this in the book. I think the saving grace was, you know, I guess you call it genetics, but it could have been stuff from past lives too. Just this natural inkling for athletics and sports, which is a very different, in a way, energy this uh, than this kind of angels and fairies kind of thing. But but in a way, it's not. You know, you think of sports as as a, as as a quite healing, you know, exercise and, and a unifying practice when everyone's fighting. It's something that everyone could kind of identify and come at the same kind of page. So. Uh, but gravitating to sports allowed me to have a greater rapport with, with my classmates because I was just natural born kind of athlete. So that was a very good grounding thing for myself to get me to be in this earth, but not of this earth, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, of course. Um, and that's a great way to cope. And I'm glad that worked for you. Now, you were athletic. Now, what got you into social work then? Now, being born in a family of humanitarians and having a father who was a clinical social worker, uh, I go out there and people, I guess, know me, but they say, oh, you're his kid. You know, my dog, my father has a you know, wonderful influence and, and reputation as a clinical social worker. So, you know, and I grew up spending my Sundays not just kind of watching, you know, the football program, pregame shows and stuff like that, but rather volunteering for those with developmental disabilities you know, in groups that he would run. So that was something that I was really taught. And, you know, my mother, obviously, too, you know, work as, works as an occupational therapist with developmentally you know, challenged young children and infants and stuff like that. So the humanitarian side of my family and, you know, lineage past my father of other social workers, too, uh, was something I was geared. But also my near-death experience, I look at the ultimate educational point of my entire lifetime. I, I don't recognize, you know, when you know, at the time, how much it's influenced me, but on a subliminal basis and a subconscious basis, um, it, you know, it's, it's everything. For instance, the, the greatest impetus, I think, for my book was to give over what I was provided to in moments of suffocation. When I had nothing you know, and I was completely suffocated was when I found and was able to be open to the help and guidance on their side to feel everything. And so I think it's my goal for people to understand how transformation could happen when we're at rock bottom and how when we think it's the end, there's a great reminder that it is never the end and there is no end. And I think it's to befriend those moments of struggle and of darkness to be able to understand that we could see the light in the dark, much like we could see the stars at night. And so I think really it was about paying it forward to other people, what I was given, you know, at the age of three. And the reminder of this gift that this was 
not just a human thing, but this was a guided spiritual thing with intelligence far greater than my own. And it was much more than just the body. It was about the unification and assistance of the ripple effect on each soul to soul and the, the, the interconnectedness that we're able to have as the ultimate source of collateral of our lifetimes. Well put. It's very nice. It makes me think of uh, the mental health field in general. And I have a background in mental health as well. And what I noticed was that a lot of the um, instability can be caused by just not being grounded. And I think spirituality is missing in our modern society uh, when it comes to providing social support to people. I mean, we are, it's that wholeness aspect. We are not just body and brain. We are, you know, heart and soul too. Right. Right. And when, and I think being ungrounded for all of us, anybody can cause a lot of mental instability and mental unwellness. And that's where practices such as Reiki and uh, hypnotherapy, which is what you do, mm -hmm can really be beneficial to a person's whole being. Can you tell me a bit more about how you got into Reiki? Yeah, you know, I think obviously, <laughs> I'm going to sound repetitive, but seeing the angels and the healing energy that they provided, um, you know, I knew instantaneously that within that moment and seeing the healing energy that they provided, that this life is a school, you know, obviously we're here to have lessons, but it's more than that. I think it's in a way it's a school for us to kind of learn how to be a guide and how to embody our true nature and, and the nature that we're connected to. And so what I love about energy healing and Reiki in particular is Ray is universal and key is energy. So really it's about getting people back into stasis and really tuned into their own energy. I think you make a, a great point where I think part of the reason why people feel you know very deflated is that they are depriving the core element of their nature. You know, I think we are, we, we prioritize so many other parts of us and ignore other parts because we don't identify with those parts. And so I think the more that we're able to explore with curiosity um, more onto who we are and not have a monopolization, clear cut understanding, the more that we're able to really uh, allow ourselves to kind of open our eyes and ears to life and to who we are and, seeing that as, as an exciting process, not a close-end uh, circumstance. But Reiki, um, I I just loved practicing to doing, doing it on my own when I learned Reiki 1, um, you know, which is really about self-induced healing and learning how to do it on yourself. What I love about Reiki is that it's intelligent energy. It really knows where to go. And you know, once you kind of tune into the Reiki and the Reiki guides, your own angels, familiarize rapport with it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. But really, I liked how it started with yourself. And once you're able to do that, then you're able to really help out someone else's. Obviously, we can't pour from an open cup. So I like the practical, like you said, the spiritual, the spirituality of practicality implications you know, of this practice. Um, I, I like those elements. Um, but I think with past life regression hypnosis, I think so much of that was, you know, I speak about this a little bit more in my book, where I not only had an understanding of previous carnations that I had, but I kept on having this recurring imagery of this other lifetime in which I 
committed suicide and took my own life. And it was quite scary not knowing what to do with that and who to talk to. And the verbiage or lexicon, you know, isn't quite there to, to really express it. And so I think really the ultimate question that people have is what is who am I? What's my life's purpose? And I view hypnosis, particularly past life regression, as a great spot for the soul to really get more in tune with the GPS because so much of you know, what we are doing is kind of like a limited understanding of who we are. And I think in the way, as we expand our understanding of life itself and who we are, so too, we could start expanding our own sense of purpose and our own sense of impact on the world uh, that is a lot more representative of who we are and not what we do. And, you know, what we've seen ourselves in this temporarily egoic consciousness and temporary body. So I think it's getting past the surface and getting to the deeper waters um, that really allow people to really be more flow ready and to have a greater understanding of some of the greater gifts and greater senses of purpose and um, to, to allow them obviously also a lot more resilience from seeing that they can never die, that they can't go on and that, that this is so much more than what we think. You know, this is a spiritual thing, not just a human thing. So. Certainly. I just wanted to make a point uh I love Eastern healing methods, um, right. Ayurveda, Reiki, etc., because they don't pathologize conditions the way the Western right. society does. So a clinical mental health diagnosis is an imbalance in chakras, for example, <laughs> right? Or, or what ha- whatever the language is, right? It's a lot more strength-based, for sure. Yes. Yes. So that already takes away the stigma and the poor self-esteem that people can have when they are labeled with some kind of condition. Now, I know we need labels and for language to understand for communication purposes. Okay, I see the point, but I think it's gotten out of control. And so, yes, so balancing the inner and the root cause of issues, that's key. And that's why energy work, it gets to the root of the problem and it addresses the whole being. Absolutely. And I, I also see it as a lot more empowering where a lot of people, they mm-hmm. have this label as, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder. And it's like a, like a death sentence to them that they feel very powerless over it. Yes. And so, you know, with, with clients, I bear in mind that that, you know, is a part of the pizza, but it's not the entire pie. You have so much more to you. And I think people need to start remembering that we didn't come to this world, you know, just as this one label, you know, we, we were, we were taught that we learned that and there's a limited understanding. And I think it's a great superpower of resilience when people are able to see themselves as the strength rather than the stigma and a pathology. And I think with mental health, it's, I mean, the only reason, reason for all these diagnoses really is for billing purposes at the end of the day, you know, in order for, you know, agencies or private therapists to bill an insurance company, they're looking for codes. Uh, but it's just amazing how, you know, to this day, mental health is still very much stigmatized and pathologized. Um, I agree with you. I don't, you know, I, I don't ignore that. I think that's obviously an important part. You know, it's hard to heal when you don't address the exact root, you know, but if that's all you're focused on, it's hard to find the healer within, you know, in that broader part of you when all you see yourself as, you know, just this stigma or just this injury and not the, you know, this great healer within as well, too, that there's a capacity to create this and also um, heal it as well, too. And, 
you know, move, move forward with it, you know, in a way and evolve with it. So, yes. So we, we talked about energy work and then you did talk a bit about the past life regression. Now I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you saw a past life where you had committed suicide. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. When did it, was that during your near death experience It was. or did you both, have a vision later in life? It was both uh, during my near death experience and I would dreams and just random visions, you know, ironically within sports, I would just get a lot of these downloads that would happen to me. So it, it happened after, and obviously my brain, you know, was very much changed after that. And so I was, I was an open filter and speak a little bit more within life after breath about some of the premonitions and understanding. Uh, but again, that, that was an impetus, obviously, uh, I'm sure too, for getting into mental health where within that lifetime, you know, I, I understood it was it was karmic in a way to have a near-death experience in some regard. Uh, I, just from my analysis, because the whole symbology of the light at the end of the tunnel and the whole symbology of what people feel when they're suicidal and they are just, uh, you know, they have, they feel suffocated and they have no, nothing to cling to. They can't, they're grasping for straws. They feel like their back is against the wall. And, and in those moments, you just remember that you know, we can never be destroyed. We can never die. We have eternal opposition, support, belief system from those on the other side, infinitely greater than we could ever imagine. And so this isn't, I think, you know, one of the issues that people have is just this limited viewpoint of of life and this kind of short-sighted suffocation that people have. And I think when you're able to step back on that and remember the eternal nature of the soul with the eternal connectivity to all those on the other side, you know, with you, you're able to be a lot more empowered in the face um, of trials and tribulations. And the biggest quote I have from my near-death experience is what is inside of me is infinitely greater than the challenges that lie in front of me. And from my NDE and, you know, suicide in that lifetime, I remembered that because not only did I have the suicide, but I remember subsequently, you know, how I, I just was like, wow, you know, I really was very short-sighted. I, I forgot my true nature. I forgot that I'm eternal and there was no condemnation or judgment. It was all, you know, love and embrace. But I just remembered that kind of transitional period after that lifetime. And um, not going to say some regrets, but just the fact that I gave a lot more power over to something that wasn't sustainable versus giving myself you know, power over to something that would have sustained me through that uh, difficult period sounds like with your experience you're saying that to remember our eternal self absolutely and so much of life is informed with how we see ourselves you know we're really inform a worldview you know we look at people who are materialistic most of the times they usually identify themselves with the body you know you ask to point yourself to point to the body and so when you're gravitating to the physical you just want more of those things whereas you understand the soul you know, you understand the responsibility to be a brother's and sister's keeper and to have a ripple effect where this lifetime is very much not what you could take with you, but what you could leave behind, you know, uh, you know, and, and the ripple effect of your existence. So, um, you know, I think when we're able to see that we, you know, don't so much focus on the me, we try to inter intertwine that with the we. Um, so I think it's a great, you know, uh, you know, vantage point for people to, to get to. But I think we have experiences that come into ourselves and come into our lifetimes that call shake periods of consciousness to kind of just kind of take that comfort 
level of our worldview and of ourselves and just totally rock it where we, we could either go into despair, you know, and all these emotions or we could find on the other side of it, a great awakening from that turbulent period and seeing the world with much different pair of set of eyes had we not had that experience you know, from before. Right, right. Very well put. Do you find that your clients share spiritual experiences with you? It's it's hard because when you work a full-time job, you're like, you want to take yourself out of the equation and then you have a licensure over your head. You know, yes. still the stuff is still stigmatized, although it's evolving. So I think that's the challenge. But um, I definitely think within more of my private practice, you know, people are, are interested in this stuff. And it's just amazing today, you know, how so many people are coming to the woodwork and saying, oh, yeah, you know, I had this experience. I had that experience. And so, you know, when I speak about Betty Eighty's book, for instance, in Life After Breath, it's not that anything changed with my experience. Is that I was able to have the words and the empowerment to have a language behind it. You know, I didn't know how what that was coined. And, you know, ironically, the man who coined the term was on the front cover of my book, Dr. Rima Moody. Uh, but I think really from hearing your story, people you know, I always say, don't be defined by my story. Allow my story to be a way for you to really define your story. Um, I don't have a possessiveness of the afterlife. My job is just to have my experience. And many times that is like a trickle of the soul and like a tickle of the soul. And that takes off a little bit of the amnesiac condition of forgetfulness that could happen within people's lifetimes. So people might get deja vu from hearing an end to ear talk or you know, but in a way, you wouldn't be coming to that if a part of you didn't identify with that story. It's not that everything is exactly the same, but from where that person came from, it touches that doorway to eternity within yourself. Right. So, what is your website? You have a you have a website where you offer your services. Yes. So my website is jacobelcooper.com. You know, and there you could look at different articles, you could look at different services, and I have a whole separate page uh, for Life After Breath there. Um, and, and I also do, um, there's a Facebook icon on top as well as Instagram, but in Facebook, once a month, I have a different topic of higher consciousness conversations. So I do a Facebook Live on my professional page at Jacob Cooper LCSW, and this is a community event. And the reason why I started doing this recently is, a lot of my clients are coming to me and they're saying with the COVID situation, they're feeling very isolated and separated and looking for support systems in a group. And so it's a great way to just have this interaction, you know, because I, def I definitely miss traveling and doing workshops and stuff like that. So it's it's good for me. And obviously it's good for community building. Um, and so if anyone wants to join us at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, usually once a month, this topic is on uh, healing on the other side and some of the lessons that I got from the other side and finding ways to uh, introduce self-induced healing within your own life, because obviously uh, most people are on this, we're in a similar storm, everyone's in a unique boat, but I think finding different ways to mitigate and handle the intensified uh, stressors, I think is as much needed you know, to, for these times. So hope, hopefully right. listeners can join us that night. Yeah. Or I wherever hope so. the world you're in, yeah. Yes, wonderful. That's great that you offer that. Thank you for offering that. Jacob, it's been wonderful speaking with you and hearing your story. It's it's so inspirational. And thank you for the good work that you do within the field of mental health support. 
Thank you as well. And, you know, thank you listeners for tuning in. And it was just a complete honor. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just very grateful that you have this opportunity and this window that's just so needed and you just do lovely work. So I ho- hope you're proud of that too. I know I'm proud of you. Oh, <laughs> thanks, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Jacob Cooper. For more on Jacob and to purchase his book, please go to jacoblcooper.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe and follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And be sure to join me next time where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.